If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy. If you're just going to go with supposition and conjecture, that's not going to stand against the real evidence. The real evidence is that Matthew and Luke frequently agree against Mark. And to try to explain that away by making stuff up that you can't prove, the stuff for which there's no evidence, really kind of shows you're not going where the evidence leads. You have made up your mind first, and now you're trying to make the evidence say what you wanted to say. The author suggests here, for example, <laughs> citing a what he calls a small but increasing number of scholars that Matthew may have, in fact, borrowed from an early version of Luke, while the version of Luke we are familiar with was later padded out with additional material. So uh, I can't even keep track of all their like, made-up manuscripts. There's uh-huh. too many. Yeah, so so this this is the explanation. Yep, we still have Mark and Friday, but where Matthew and Luke agree is because Mark is also using a an earlier version of Luke that for which is no evidence, no indication, no proof, no nothing. But we need that to make our, our, our theory fit. It uh, <laughs> reminds me of that saying from a famous doctor who said the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit their views. In this case, it's inventing facts to fit their views. As, as this writer correctly says, allowing for multiple versions can make anything you want. Okay, If you have a complete lack of evidence... As you do for Q, well, you can just say whatever you want. Interestingly, Craig Evans, Scott Craig Evans, who's evangelical, he's a proponent of this two-source theory. And he says, quote, supporters of the two-source hypothesis agree that this is the most vulnerable point in their hypothesis. So it sort of seems like, well, as long as we admit that it's a problem, we can just kind of brush over it or paper over it. I don't know how Evans tries to get around it, but there is no real way to get around it. Oh, it reminds me of Darwin admitting that the lack of transitional forms is a problem for his theory. Yes, and he said, to, yeah, this this is, of, of the many objections to my theory that could be raised, this is perhaps the, the most powerful. And then he said, well, but, you know, it's not, it's, it's only because we haven't found a lot of fossils yet, so give us time. I'm sure as we find more and more fossils, we'll find these transitional forms. Now, that's the opposite of how science is supposed to work. Science is supposed to find evidence and draw conclusions from it, not make up the conclusion and then say, trust us, we'll find the evidence later. 
he never found the evidence. The evidence was not found in the 150 plus years since the publication of his book. We found literally billions of fossils and no genuine transitional forms, no creature that's got organs or structures, organ systems that are intermediate between two to two fully formed, fully functional elements, like going from fish to reptile, reptile to bird. You'd have to have scales turning into feathers, and it'd have to happen in many steps. You need something with a skin covering that itself is some, each element, each piece of it is somehow 50% feather, 50% scale. That's what a genuine transitional form would be. We haven't found even one. So you haven't even found one of these unicorn manuscripts? We've not found any unicorn manuscripts. We've not found earlier versions of Luke. We've not found Q or any of this, any of this. So again, you can see why liberal scholars push for it. You see how it advances their agenda. Difficult to see why evangelicals would just so readily accept these. Well, like like you've said before, if you repeat a lie loudly enough and often enough, then people just believe it, right? Yeah, that's the, the big lie theorem, but you'd, you'd hope for better. Now, they'll come up with a few other arguments, for example. They, they'll say Matthew and Luke's order of pericopes agrees with Mark, but not with each other. What's a pericope? Each, each little story unit, like one particular parable, one particular healing miracle. All of these, the scholars have taken and calling them pericopes. Okay? And because then you could start doing so-called, they call source criticism. Where did each independent pericope come from before the anonymous writer stitched them all together and redacted them into the, the book we have now. As we said, that's the Lachman fallacy at work there. And now they will try to point to things like, for example, the death of John the Baptist. Because where the death of John the Baptist is mentioned, it's not in chronological order. It's a sort of a flashback. And they say, well, see, if, if they're writing independently and they're describing the death of John the Baptist, not in chronology, but they, they choose to do as a flashback, what are the chances that each of them independently would put it in the same place? And they say, see, that, that you, know, you can't get that by chance. It would have to be from copying. Well, unless they're both talking about an incident that is in chronological order where you have to know as a background fact that John the Baptist had died. Yes, in fact, if you read the three accounts you will see that they also, with now Herod, King Herod heard of him and said, this is John the Baptist, who has risen from the dead, and therefore these, these powers are at work in him. So in point of fact, the chronology is there. The chronology is, the next thing that happened is Herod started paying attention to what he'd heard. And then Herod's opinion was, this is, must be John the Baptist come back from the dead, because Herod didn't want to kill John. He was essentially tricked into it. He might have felt guilty and, and worried about it. But that's the thing. They, they put the flashback. Chronologically, they all agree that this is the time that King Herod started to address the issue because that's what happened in the chronology. So, of course, that's where you put the description of the death of John the Baptist. So it's not random. It's not three guys randomly picking the same place to put it, put it into there. It's simply because that fits into the chronology of the story where the chronology is about King Herod's response. They, they will point to things like a presence of editorial comments and other redactional material in the synoptics that are not required if you're just telling a historical fact. But when you ask to look at them, there's, I'm not seeing a lot of them. The only one I ever hear 
is that Matthew and Mark feature an identical aside to the reader, an editorial comment in the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, then do this. And they say, well, that, that let the reader understand is an editorial comment. Why would two of them independently put it in the same place? Well, maybe Jesus actually said it as part of his quotation. Exactly. Well, how can we just decide that this is an editorial comment inserted by the writer? Maybe it's part of Jesus' actual speech. It makes sense because he mentions the abomination of desolation without explaining what it is. It's a little obscure in, in Daniel. So, yeah, Jesus might have been telling them, you guys, need, you guys who read Daniel, you need to understand this. We mentioned the style and grammar that Mark's is rougher and more primitive than Matthew and Luke. But again, not an issue. Mark had no education that we know of. He was obviously literate, but we, we don't know what his job was. We know that Matthew was a tax collector who had to be highly literate. We know that Luke was a physician, might have been highly educated, and he was a Greek. So a Greek would have been his mother tongue. So we expect that Luke and Matthew should have much better quality of Greek than Mark. It has nothing to do with Matthew and Luke changing Mark. So that summarizes the various arguments that have been raised in favor of Mark and priority. As we've seen, none of them really supports that idea. And certainly together, they cannot stand against the, the unanimous testimony of the early church. All of them are predicated, in fact, upon the idea of literary dependence that one gospel writer copied from, from others. And we've already seen that the evidence doesn't support that hypothesis either. So when we sum up what we have in total, the genuine evidence regarding Mark and priority is this. The evidence against it is the universal testimony of the early Christians who were in a position to know. As we recall, these were people who knew the apostles or knew people who knew the apostles trained under an apostle, were trained by someone who was trained under an apostle, and so on. They were in a position to know, and the universal testimony is that Matthew was first. That's the evidence against Mark and priority. The evidence for it, as we've seen, there is no genuine evidence for it. There, there are hypotheses and claims based on assumptions, but they don't hold water. Now, it's not surprising that liberal scholars will hold to this anyway, because the gospel books cannot be seen as supernatural in any way, as divinely inspired, written by people or empowered by the Holy Spirit. No. But what is surprising to me is that evangelical scholars will accept this claim, along with those various other claims that we've looked at and debunked, the idea that the gospel books were written late, the so-called late dating. We saw in that quote from Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible that they accept that Mark was written in the late 60s, perhaps 70, Luke in the early 70s, Matthew in the late 70s, sometimes that's flipped around or put into the 80s, John sometime in the 80s AD, or more commonly in the 90s. And that's what's accepted. Mark and priority is accepted. The Q document, it's not universally accepted among evangelicals, but I think it is a large majority who do. We have, for example, Craig Blomberg in the case for Christ telling us, Mark in particular, as the writer of probably the earliest gospel, 
It would make sense for Matthew, even though he was an eyewitness, to rely on Peter's version of events as transmitted through Mark. Now, I'm not sure why we would think that would make sense. Why would we think, if I were writing, for example, about something that happened 50 years ago when we moved from you moved from Montreal to Toronto, and I want to write about it, why would I not write my own experiences? Why would I find it more, more reasonable to rely on, say, my brother's version of events? It just doesn't make sense. Unless you forgot everything. Well, if I forgot everything, then of course I'd have to consult with everybody. So are we supposed to think that Matthew the eyewitness forgot everything? Matthew had an advantage I don't actually. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit per Jesus' promise in John fourteen twenty six. My my testimony would not be eyewitness testimony if I forgot everything. So no contra Blomberg, it really doesn't make sense. So let's sum up for a moment, in a moment the various, what I call liberal paradigm assumptions that we've looked at, and then see why and how these are used to undercut the credibility of Christianity. One of the paradigm assumptions that we discussed is whether the gospel books were anonymous or whether they were written by the people to whom they are ascribed. If the latter, it means we have eyewitness testimony from two apostles, three in total, one through an agent. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.